You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is David Rudy. I'm the pastor here, and we are ready to worship our Savior. And we're going to open today with a word from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there with me if you would like. But 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. That's our God. He loves us. And he's always there for us, even when we don't feel it. Praise God for the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are in a series called Rend the Heavens. And as Lee was alluding to during the announcement time, this is a series about the lifeblood, the building blocks of our church. We did a series in the summer about the church. And it was called Church on Fire, and it was more about the church as a whole. And, and this is a very unique topical series where we're looking specifically at us as a church, who, this specific local church and who God's called us to be, why we do what we do, and who we are in Christ. So we gather every Sunday to have an encounter with God. And we just, we, we already have, right? We already have. It's been amazing. Uh, but we believe that if we worship our Savior above all else, that if we preach the word of God and then we pray and that we witness, we will be a church that has an encounter with God. We see his spirit move and then that motivates and inspires us to go out into the world and share the message of the good news, the love of God. And the way that practically works out in real life is by these three different pieces that we've been working through together in this series. Worshiping Christ, first and foremost, walking in Christ, and then working through Christ. Last week we talked about walking in Christ, and we saw from Colossians 2 how that happens. Just Really brief review, I'll, I'll show you here. There's four specific ways that we saw from Colossians chapter 2 on what that looks like. Walk in Christ through complete dependence. Walk in Christ by thinking differently from the world. Walk in Christ to live in freedom from others. Walk in Christ with an eternal perspective. Now, I'm not going to quite get off the whole walking in Christ piece today because there's another element of this that I alluded to last week that we need to spend some time on. And this is not going to be one of those rah-rah, super exciting, yes type of sermons today. This is going to be a little deeper and a little heavier because where I feel led to go with this was talking about walking in Christ through dark days. 
walking with Christ when everything isn't going great. Because that's an aspect of the life of a Christian. It's, it's got to be a part of our understanding as a church. So I want you to, I want you to see where I'm coming from this, with, with this and how this fits into our Run the Heaven series on the church. I was actually listening to a message uh, just a couple weeks ago. Uh, a friend of mine sent me this message. He's like, hey, you need to listen to this one. It was by Timothy Keller, and he was preaching on something totally different, but he was preaching on knowing the love of God. Knowing the love of God in your inner being from Ephesians chapter 3. And in Ephesians 3, there's this prayer of Paul to the church at Ephesus to be filled with this deep sense of knowing God's love, the fullness, the, the fullness of God. And you may, you may wonder, well, wait, um, that's something that, that Paul's already talked to the Ephesian church about that they already have. They already have the love of God. They already know the love of God. So why is Paul praying for them to know in their inner being this love of God? So we're actually going to be talking about that side of the, that side of the coin next week. And that's going to actually be our text next week is Ephesians 3. But in that message, he said that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can and you will sustain periods where you know the love of God in this deepest sense and you have his presence is there with you. You will also have periods of time at the same time where you will go through an intense period of dryness spiritually. And you'll wonder, where is God right now? Where is he at? And even for Christians, those periods can last a long time. You should expect those dark times. So that's where we're at with today's message. Part of walking in Christ in this present life is you're going to have dark seasons. Now, the, the important piece of this for the church right here is that you can't change and grow without experiencing both the incredible joy and the earth-shattering sense of being overwhelmed with God's presence, just as you aren't going to grow in some ways and get as close to God as you need to without going through the dark time, in the time where he just, his presence feels, feels completely not there. So that's why Paul is on his knees telling the Ephesians, what you need most is to know the love of God in your inner being. So to be continued on that aspect of it next week, um, we are going to look at both, but today it is the pain part. There's joy and pain, there's sorrow and peace, there's God's overwhelming presence, and there's also spiritual dryness. And today we're, we're taking a week on the spiritual dryness. Both are in the Bible, both are part of your walk, and here's really where this fits in with, with us as a church, understanding exactly who we are as a church. Something else Tim Keller said in that same sermon that really struck me was, he said, I'll, I'll give you his exact quote, after 35 years in ministry, I have come to realize that virtually all churches prepare their people for one or the other, but rarely, if ever, both. You see that? And maybe you've been in a lot of different churches in your life. You've been a Christian for a long time. Um, he broke it down this way, and he said, similar to the balance between spirit and truth, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, 
Jesus is full of grace and truth. We've been singing about that, right? Very important. You have to have both of those aspects of Christ down. But everybody falls one, one way or the other. There's some people that just naturally are more disposed to falling into the I'm a truth and word type person. And your emphasis is on obedience, being faithful. And if that's the way you're wired, you're a little, chances are, before you grow in this and mature in this, you're going to be a little nervous about the spiritual highs in those mountaintop experiences where we know the inner joy and the deepness of the love of God. And often those churches who are really all about truth and word, they don't always teach people to experience those deep encounters with God. The emotions tend to be squelched, and there's somewhat of a yellow light with the gifts of the Spirit to varying degrees. Now, I'm summarizing and generalizing here, but you get the point, right? On the other hand, you have the churches who are big on the Spirit. They're big on the experience. You have to know Christ and experience His power and anointing. Seek to prophesy. But the way this side of it goes is that God isn't, if, if God isn't just wrecking your heart right now, there's something wrong with you. What's, what's wrong with you? Something's off. You're, you're missing the experience side of it. So we have to remember that Jesus is full of grace and truth. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So with both of these good things, if one of them blurs past the balance line, it will result in practical problems that people in the church will feel. And oftentimes, the person who's in the middle of it is usually the last person to realize it. But both people, if you're out of balance on this with the experience and, and the filling, this amazing mountaintop in the spirit, or if you're out of balance with just, it has to be the truth, it has to be applied, this is the word of God. If you, if you miss one, or one side of either one of those, pride enters the equation. And... People around you notice this, like, wow, that person, person's a little prideful. Person's cocky. You feel that. So just like the truth word, churches don't teach people how to grow in the deep emotional highs. The spirit experiences churches don't set people up to go through long periods of dryness. And you're left with something must be wrong with me. I'm not confessing my sin enough or I just don't have it. And you end up craving the experience more than you crave just knowing Jesus Christ. I say all that because Doxa Church, we have to realize how deep and nuanced this is. But you have to stay balanced with both pieces because this matters in real life. This is really where the doctrine plays out. So we have to be a church that is nuanced and mature enough to expect and experience both, both of those things. You will walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you will sit at the table in the feast that he's prepared before you. Both those things are going on. There's the sunshine and there is the gray. One person may feel led to confess a sin or may be experiencing profound victory in that moment. Just as another person may be going through years of grinding it out in this gloomy, overcast state spiritually. There's outside circumstances that are affecting them. Both are reality, and God works through both. So take your Bible and turn to Psalm 88, because today we're looking at the peak, pinnacle, of spiritual dryness 
in Psalm 88. This chapter, along with Psalm 39, are the only two places in the entirety of Scripture that don't end on a, on a note of hope. You have a lot of passages that talk about the dark times. I mean, many of us can think of, okay, Job or Habakkuk. You know, I read 2 Corinthians 1 already this morning. Like, there's plenty of places like that. But everywhere else in Scripture, always at the, there's always a mountaintop coming. And there's always this look to God, peace. I pick Psalm 88 because this is one of the darkest of the dark. Of the two, the two darkest chapters in the Bible, this is one of them right here. I want you to be prepared for this because if you, <laughs> if you just opened up your Bible and picked out a random chapter to read and you picked Psalm 88, you'd probably wonder, what is this doing in Scripture? Okay? But there's a reason for all of this. There's a reason this is in the Bible, and that is what I want you to see in the message today. So would you please, please read the passage with me? Psalm 88, we're going to read this chapter, verses 1 through 18. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave on your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness of your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Another way to translate that last verse, verse 18, is my only friend is darkness. What kind of a prayer ends like that? Maybe you're still wondering, what is this doing in the Bible? Psalm 88 teaches us three things about our walk. And we're going to cover these three things, apply them not only to our own lives, but also we're going to apply them to being a member of a church as you walk in love with others. But here's the first truth that we see from this. Number one, darkness is something that can last a long time for a believing Christian. Notice the text, verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation. 
This is a man who's writing Psalm 88 who believes in God. O Lord of my salvation. They are trusting him. They are praying to him and they're saying, you're the one who saved me. So that's established. God is his savior. And he's saying in all of this, he's still saying, I'm trusting you. Now, a lot of that didn't sound like it, I know, but, but he, he is setting that tone up front. Now, there's two kinds of darkness in the, that immediately come to play here. There's this outer darkness, the circumstances of life. He's losing all of his friends. He even mentions his beloved there. Not exactly sure who that is, but could be a close friend, could be a, a spouse. Secondly, though, he's facing death. Now, I'm preaching from the ESV, and one of the unique things about this particular translation, I don't usually talk about this, but I may as well mention it now, is that they transliterate the Hebrew word sheol into the text here. And to transliterate means they just take a Hebrew word and they just sub in the English, English letters and they make a new English word from that old Hebrew word. So many translations will translate sheol as either hell or pit, but he is pouring out his heart to God. This is exactly how it is for him right now. This is how he feels. My life is hell, and I feel like my life is going to Sheol, okay? Look again at verse 8. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Sila means to look back and reflect upon what was just said. So whenever you get a Sila in the Psalms, think of this instrumental music uh, interlude where the words are fading out and there's nothing left but deep reflection with the music itself. He's pondering and meditating on this. Do the dead rise up and praise you? What he's saying is, I can't do anything for you, God, if I'm dead. How can I bring you glory and show the world who you are when I'm suffering like this? I'm empty, and where are you? I may as well die. And if I do, what, if I die, what good is that going to be for you, God? That's his prayer right now. Now, we don't quite know the circumstances of what this man is dealing with, and that's okay because it's intentional. The Psalms are placed in the Psalter not as historical narrative, but for you to personalize. These are prayers for you to pray, similar prayers to God, and to put yourself in that place. And I don't know how many of you have a clenched fist right now at God, hopefully not to the same degree, but I know some of you may be close. There's people here today who are feeling this. You feel distant from God. And you hear this series title, Rend the Heavens. You're like, I need that, but it's just been so long. Where is he? All you have is your faith, and you keep, you keep going back in prayer. But just like this guy, you wonder, what's wrong with me? Because I don't feel it. So this chapter is showing you, you can be a believing follower of God, doing what you're supposed to do, and nothing seems to get better. 
Now, that may be a downer, but there's something here that we all need to appreciate about Psalm 88. It's something that we even sang about already this morning. It's showing the realness of our faith. I may be aging myself with this illustration that I'm about to give, um, but I'm comfortable with my age, so it's okay. Uh, you take the great work of art known as the Princess Bride. There's a lot of quotes <laughs> in that great work of art, okay? And uh, one of the not as quotable quotes is still good. It it's actually fits perfectly for this. Life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Remember that one? Yeah, okay. That's, that's about right when it comes to real life, right? A lot of people, see, are, are they're turned off to the Bible. They're turned off to Christianity because is all they see is the sunshine parts of these people forcing a smile and trying to be happy. All they hear are, are you do this and your life will be good. But they look at Christians and they're like, oh, that person's life is not that great. And we as Christians feel that, right? People are not getting the full message of God's word. The Bible isn't selling anything. Christianity is realistic. You can do, there's, and you can still have long times where there's darkness. It, it doesn't lift. Nowhere does the Bible teach you get saved and it's all going to be good. Bad things can't happen to me. I've cleaned it all up. Yay. Well, if that was the case, everybody would have cleaned it up by now. And it's just not reality. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. The world hated me, and it will hate you. And, and the servant is not above his master, okay? Expectations have to be aligned. It's a big part of handling suffering. And I know someone, and many of you do as well, who was way better than you and I, Jesus Christ, who was still, who was still tortured, who still suffered, who, who was killed. So please don't have those false expectations. The Bible doesn't teach that. And remember, if you remember how we opened up our series here in January 2nd with the new walk for the new year, and this was part of that. I said, live in the moment with grace and reflection on the past and realism and hope for the future. There is a dark reality, and that is the realism part. So, so line your expectations with reality. The Bible isn't selling you anything. It offers a gift. That's what the Bible is telling you. It has the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ that holds the essence of life. That's what you were created for. It's not peddling a warm feeling. There is a realness about Christianity and it's open to see in God's word. So a biblical worldview is the only perspective that makes sense of this dark world. It's the only one. As well as being the only philosophy that contains lasting hope. Now let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Darkness is something that can last a long time for the believing Christian, but what does that mean for us as a church? Well, here's, here's the next applicational part. Expect pain for yourself and embrace others who are walking through darkness. We must be a church that's vigilant about this. 
Yes, we come and celebrate the resurrection every Sunday morning. We worship Christ. We're united by the blood of Jesus Christ, but we're not just a pep club either, okay? It's not helpful to pretend that everything is always okay. Sometimes things are not okay. It's all right to not be all right. And God has put us as a church body together in each other's lives to exhort and to edify and to lift one another up. Sometimes that means being patient. Many, many times that means showing grace to someone else who's in a bad place. But we have to lift one another up. We have to gently and consistently and lovingly be that shoulder to cry on in this, in this world, this present life. And as we do that, we gently point them to God who also suffered. Hebrews 4, Jesus Christ is the great high priest who knows exactly how you feel. He suffered in every, every single way you have and you are suffering, and he did it without sin. That in and of itself is a miracle. So that's number one. Here's the next truth. Number two, there's no better place to learn about the grace of God than through dark times. Now, some of this prayer isn't really a prayer. It's an interrogation. And it's sarcastic with these nasty rhetorical questions to God. But he's saying, I want to be your witness. I want to do all these things. And I can't if I'm dead, God. Some would call that temperamental. Maybe somebody would call that blasphemous. It's probably somewhere in between. But this is not a good place to be. And the author here is not really being respectful to who he's talking to in this prayer. Nevertheless, the Bible's real. It's, it's a real prayer. But he's far from saying what the way Jesus taught us how to pray, thy will be done, right? It's pretty far off from that. I've heard people in this room, in this church, say these exact type of things after an amazing worship service. After, after a time when we had an encounter with God and people are laughing and praising God, I, I've also been in that same conversation where people are still saying this. God's not in my life right now, and I don't, I'm angry at God. In those moments, I didn't feel the need to correct them and, and to make it all right in that moment. You can't always do that. I didn't jump on it. But I knew this is reality, and I started praying for that person immediately. This has happened more than once. But look a little closer at what he is saying here, verses 13 through 17. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your tears, I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close, on, close in on me altogether. Now, could this really be accurate from my youth on up? This is almost certainly at this point an exaggeration, to be honest. But what he's saying here is, this is what he's feeling. He's feeling, God, you've never been there for me. And I want, you to, I want you to see that there is a tendency 
when we're in the dark times, when we're in the place of despair, there's a tendency to read everything from what's going on right now. And you read all of your life up to, and you, and you block all of the good things of God out, and you're only seeing what you can see in front of you. If we're not careful, we can easily shift away from reality. If you're saying things that aren't true, it's because you're thinking things that are not true. This is why we always say you have to focus on what you know to be true about God. I know what's in front of you right now feels horrible, but what do you know for sure about God? What he's revealed in his word. He's faithful and he loves you. And think about all the good things he has done for you. This man has been saved by God, okay? So he can go back to that. It's not what you don't know for sure about the future that you need to focus on. It's what you do know for sure to be true about God that you need to focus on. You can always step back and reflect. You can see who God is, that he was faithful then and he will be faithful now. But this psalmist isn't quite there at this moment. And he's being incredibly disrespectful. Darkness is my closest friend. Darkness is better than you are right now. Wow. So what are we to do with this? Yeah, sure, the Bible acknowledges this part of life, but how does that help, <laughs> right? Some of you are asking that. Well, there's a British Old Testament scholar, maybe you've heard his name, Derek Kidner. He was the warden at Tyndale House for over half a century. And he said this about Psalm 88. This was his summary of Psalm 88. The very presence of these prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. God knows how men speak when they are desperate. Thank you, God. That's reassuring. God put this in the preserved canon of Scripture. He didn't say, I don't want that in my Bible. He put this in here to let us know that he understands how desperate we feel at times. He knows how you speak when you're desperate. And if you step back and think about what God is saying between the lines is, to, to, for God to allow this to be in Scripture, what God is saying is, I'm big enough, confident enough, strong enough to show you grace even when you're spouting off all this stuff that is not true. There's grace for that. I'm your God, not because you do everything right, but because I'm a God of grace. That's our God. Think about how liberating that is how freeing that is, that we have a God who's that strong. He's full of grace and truth. He's going to show you grace even when you're angry and you blow it, even when you treat him with lack of respect. He's not going to turn his back on you. So there's no better place to learn about the grace of God than through dark times. And as a church, what that means for us is we have to love deeply when we see how deeply we are loved. Love deeply by seeing how deeply you are loved. There's, there's, a, there's a time when you're in that dark place, nothing's going well, this person over here is being horrible, there's this trial, you have so much weight on your shoulders. The only way you can get through it is by looking to the grace of God and you see how much he loves you. When you get that, you can deeply love someone else.
Grace is unmerited favor, giving something to someone that they don't deserve. We can never do that for others until we've hit bottom and we've seen how unworthy we are. And we see that God has an endless supply of grace for us. But it doesn't end there. There's another piece that coincides with this, and it gets even better. Dark times are not only the best place to learn about God's grace, they are also the best place to become great. This is the third point. There's no better way to become great than walking through dark times. So the psalmist is not doing things great. He's insulting God. He's hurting. His emotions are carrying him into this dark place where he's forgetting the goodness of God right now. And he's saying quite a few things that he should never be saying. But who's he saying them to? He's saying them to God. You see that in verse 13? This is very key. Verse 13, look at it. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayers, in the morning, my prayer comes before you. This is very key. Habakkuk kept praying to God. Job never stopped talking to God. If you go back to Job and you look at the, if you camp out in the middle of that book, I know it's a very large book, but a lot of those prayers, it wasn't just his friends that were way off saying things that, that weren't really quite accurate. Job was, Job was also saying some things to God that he didn't need to be saying, right? Do you recall? God had to come to him in a whirlwind and set the record straight and show him who he really was. Through all of this, you have to keep the communication line going between you and God. That's very important. There was a lot of I don't understand, but he never turned his back away. He stayed with God even when he was getting nothing out of it. Now, going back to the story of Job, if you recall that story, at the end, when Job continued to pray, God revealed himself, and Job never cursed God, it really stuck a knife in Satan's theory. Do you remember Satan's theory? At the beginning of that whole, that whole story, Satan comes before God, and he proposed to God that, that Job's relationship with his creator was just this transaction. The only reason Job praises you and blesses your name is because you bless him. That was, that was the deceiver, the, our enemy, Satan, the accuser of the brethren. That, that's what he was saying to God. It's the same thing Satan probably still does about us to God. They only, they only praise you when times are good. Because you've given them so many things, that's why they bless your name. So Job questioned and begged and pleaded, and he had no answer for an extended periods of time, but he never cursed God and died. He stayed faithful to God, and he proved our enemy was dead wrong. Amen? A true relationship with God is not based on You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's not that kind of transaction. And herein lies another crucial point. Going through dark days turns you into a person of endurance and strength. 
And without friction, we would all just stay soft. There was never any tough times. We would never develop those muscles that need, that need to be developed. Darkness turns a child of God closer to God. And that's when a person can become a person of greatness for the kingdom of God when they go through those trials. To use another great piece of art, this is no joke this time. I mean, well, I was half joking the first time. Definitely not joking now. I'm serious. No messing around. The Lord of the Rings, another great work of art. Yeah. One of the greatest characters in all of literature, Samwise Gamgee, all right? Who's with me on that? Yes. The little hobbit who just couldn't give up on his friend. Towards the end of the story, when they're nearing Mount Doom, for those of you who know the Lord of the Rings, J.R. R. Tolkien has one of, one of his many, many incredible lines. But this is what he said. But even as hope died in Sam or seemed to die, it was turned to new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, as the will hardened in him, and he felt through all his limbs a thrill, as if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. That's what happened to that guy, that character in that story. He never gave up. And, and through the, the, the most vicious, wild story you can ever imagine, barren, endless miles, he grew this resolve and this strength to do something that he couldn't have done any other way. J.R.R. Tolkien knew Christ. He, he's writing this as a metaphor of, of real life, Okay? See, it's in the darkness you throw away that transactional approach to God. It's only in the darkness that your faith goes from Sunday school class to mature manhood. It's only in the darkness that your faith goes from my parents' feel-good faith to mature womanhood. This is how it works. The dark times of long, prolonged silence, of unanswered prayer, they make or break you as a vessel of God's glory. You have a chance to either turn away from God or to run to him, to cling to him. God loves you enough to be there for you, to, be, to still be there, but to be just out of reach enough to make you reach out for him. He's that confident, he's that bold, he's that strong. And sometimes what it takes to be great, to turn a creature of, into a, a creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles can subdue is going through that darkness. Now, if you're like me, at this point, you have to be wondering, who is the author of Psalm 88? Who is this guy? Anybody thinking that, wondering that out there? <laughs> uh, is it King David? He wrote a lot of Psalms, right? It doesn't really seem to fit with, with King David from everything we know about him, slaying giants when he was a youth. Definitely knew that God was with him then. Well, whoever this is believes in this moment that his darkness was never going to end until death. But we actually know from the Bible that his darkness did end before he died. And this is one of the awesome things about the Bible. It's tight. There's the, when you study the Bible, it'll never cease amazing you. There's always a piece to it. Um, and I love, I, I love how we do know about the author of this 
chapter. So read the title of Psalm 88 if you haven't already. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master according to the Mahaleth Leneth, a mascal of Haman the Ezraite. Haman the Ezraite. Anybody know that name? Bible trivia people in here? Anyone, anyone know about Haman? Not Haman from Esther, not He-Man, no, Haman, Haman? All right. Well, here's another example of how the Bible reveals stuff when you look at it and when you study it, that it's just, it'll blow you away. But this guy is in the Bible a couple times. In 1 Chronicles 6.33, he is mentioned in a genealogy list as Haman, the singer of the son of Joel. Then again in 1 Chronicles 15, Heman, along with Asaph and Ethan, were the ones sounding bronze cymbals to usher in the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And again, in 1 Chronicles 16, we are told this. This is speaking of David, worshiping the Lord before the Ark, but right before you get David dance before the Lord in the Ark, you get this, get this in the scripture. To offer burnt offerings to the Lord on an altar of burnt offering regularly, morning and evening, to do all that is written in the law of the Lord that he commanded Israel. With them were Heman and Judathun and the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. This guy was chosen and expressly named to be a part of this worship ceremony of the Ark of the Covenant with King David. Yeah, he may be a name from Bible trivia, but this is an incredible man who wrote, along with the sons of, sons of Korah, some of the, uh, excuse me, sons of Asaph, um, some of the greatest literary art in the history of the world. He was chosen and expressly named to be a part of this elaborate worship ceremony. We're talking about the best of the best of the nation. What an artist this guy must have been. Elite musician, right there giving thanks to the Lord whose steadfast love endures forever. So pressure turns a piece of coal into a diamond. Haman wasn't in a good place in Psalm 88, but it was temporary. And it was in that suffering that he was turning into a great artist. Do you see how God was turning him into something great? God was always there. Even though he didn't feel like it for a long time, God was there. So maybe we can all just add another person to our list of people that we want to meet in the new earth one day. He's definitely one for me. But if God is your savior, he is there even when you don't feel it. There's no better way to become great than walking through dark times. And as a church, we have to remember to cling to him who loves you, God. When you cling to him, he will then change you and you can become the type of person who will change the world around you. So as a church, we faithfully serve God, sometimes even when we don't feel like it. Even when our emotions are crushed and, 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 we're, and we're not in the greatest place, we still look to God 
and we cling to him and we serve him. We we serve through Christ. We can't wait for the perfect church to just show up. There are no perfect churches, right? Because they all have people in them. (laughs) But you find a church that worships Christ, you walk with Christ, and then you serve Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's how we glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission, which is the mission that we all have. Now, in Psalm 39, the other psalm I mentioned that doesn't end with any hope, it almost cryptically ends with this line, Psalm 39, verse 13. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. That's the gloomy end of Psalm 39. Very similar to Psalm 88. But as a child of King Jesus, all of the Christians in this room, you have... All of you who were redeemed, you are a new creation. You're part of this new covenant. When I see Psalm 88 and I see that specific line at the end of Psalm 39, it points me really in one direction. And I hope it points you in the same direction. Where in Scripture do we actually see God turn his face away? Like Psalm 39 was talking about. The cross, at the cross. The only time and place this ever happened was when Jesus was dying on the cross. When God forsook his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who bled and died for my sin, for your sin. Remember what Jesus said in the ninth hour when he was hanging on the cross? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It's, the same, it's saying the same thing. Why have you turned your face from me? Jesus got total darkness. Jesus was abandoned. Actually, really, by God. Not just subjectively in his feelings. He actually received the wrath of God. Only Jesus received that. In in that moment in time, at the cross, darkness was his only friend. Because he took the sins that we committed. Do you see this? Do you see our Savior here in this text? Jesus experienced darkness as his only friend. So in your darkness, you can know that Jesus is still your friend. That's our Savior. Jesus was truly abandoned, so you will only feel abandoned. That's that's the gift that we can receive from Jesus Christ. It gives new light to that, that phrase in Psalm 88, do the dead rise up and praise you? Well, do they? Spiritually dead, People like myself and like many of you who were, who were cast away, we were, we, were, we were alienated, we were separated from God, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God raises us up with his son and gives us life. So I dare say the answer to that question is yes. The dead do rise up and praise you when they receive the newness of life. 
from Jesus Christ. Through the finished work of the cross, we can rise up with our Savior and praise Him. I don't know who needed this today, but at some point we're all going to need this from Psalm 88. And to some degree, we're all dealing with darkness. I know it varies widely, but I mean, in 2022, I don't know many people who aren't dealing with something. The youth is dealing with things that young people never had to deal with in our country, ever. These, these feelings of loneliness and isolation and cancellations. Healthcare worker. I mean, I could go on and on. I'm thinking of all the people that are dealing with stuff in this room. What are, what are you dealing with? What are you walking through right now? Maybe you're not in a period of darkness, and praise God for that. I know a lot of you are in a spiritual high mountaintop experience with your life right now. But both of these things are part of growing closer to God. All right, well, let's close with our verse today. Romans 12, 9 through 13. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You are love.